We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed the handling law in soccer is still one of the most frustrating confusing and maddening laws of the game it's often subjective and so referees players coaches and fans alike are all left to interpret but this gray area of the game is unnecessary i believe the law should be this if the ball hits your hand or arm it's a foul it'll be black and white did the ball hit the hand or not Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the handling law in soccer. We will have our Mossy Makes the Case segment, and Mossy's going to be talking about chokers versus clutch players. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment, in which we'll talk about the U.S. men's national team and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you this Monday? I am good. Uh, I have never been to Nashville, but everybody I know oh. that's been to Nashville raves about it. You were there this weekend. Is it as good as it's cracked up it's to be? It's better than it's cracked up to be. It is Vegas without the gambling. So much so that one thing you'll find, even before you get there, as you fly in, inevitably you will be on a plane with a bachelorette party. Is the bachelorette, bachelorette capital if you will. Bachelorette parties all over the place. Now, that's not a reason necessarily to go to a city. It's, uh, it depends who you are, but I, I, you know, it's, fine. it's fine with me. But uh, you know, the music lived up to it. Uh, the, the, uh, the scene down there uh, on the strip with all the incredible venues, people, uh, it, it, makes, it, it makes me very, very bullish about the future when it comes to Nashville uh, SC coming into Major League Soccer and other stuff. We were down there for the women's game. Great crowd. Yeah, it's, I, ca- I can't say enough good things about the city of Nashville. I look forward you to You haven't going. been there yet. No, that, that bachelorette thing you told me. that uh, That's right up your alley, too. That's huh? right up my alley. What did you do this weekend? Anything exciting? Any hiking? I did do some hiking. It's still raining a lot in L.A., yes, so is. very muddy terrain out there, but I'm, I'm fighting through it. Uh, I had Bundesliga both Saturday and Sunday early morning. So uh, Bundesliga. Yeah. It's nice, huh? We got ourselves <laughs> a... A race. Well, maybe don't. Who knows? By, by this, you know, next couple of weeks, who knows? There might not even be a race. All right. Uh, enough of the uh, the bachelorette party stories. Shall we move on? Yep. All right. Let's light this candle. As you know, each and every week, we kick off the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. This past week, IFAB, the body that makes the laws of the game, looked to clarify the definition of a handball. But the handling law in soccer is still one of the most frustrating, confusing, and maddening laws of the game. The law calls for deliberate contact of the hand or arm with the ball and considers movement of hand, position of hand, and distance to the ball. 
It's often subjective, and so referees, players, coaches, and fans alike are all left to interpret. And handballs are almost always open to multiple interpretations. But this gray area of the game is unnecessary. I believe the law should be this. If the ball hits your hand or arm, it's a foul. Intent, deliberate, natural, unnatural, ball to hand, hand to ball, making yourself bigger, accidental, incidental, all of that should just go away and shouldn't matter. This way, referees and video assistant referees won't be charged with the next to impossible task when the ball hits a hand or arm of figuring out what a player is or isn't thinking or what a normal human silhouette is or isn't. It'll be black and white. Did the ball hit the hand or arm or not? But Alexi, I hear you screaming. Attacking players are going to deliberately try to hit the defender's hands and arms and get penalties. So what? We already see modern defenders playing with their arms behind their backs. If you're good enough to hit the hand or arm of an opponent and draw a penalty, then have at it. And yes, if all players now have to defend with arms behind their back, then it provides an additional advantage to attacking players. And that's a good thing. I want more goals. I want more reasons to encourage attacking players to get into the box and take players on. Over the years, the laws of the game have been changed to protect creative attacking players and to encourage more offense. This would simply be the same. All right, Mossy, there's my State of the Union for this week. What say you? First off, uh, let's talk about this specific law and how you see my suggestion playing out. And then we'll get into maybe some more changes that you and I might like to see in the game. I agree with you 100%. Oh, my goodness. Really? Mark now, it down. Now, the change they did make was that if the ball hits your hand and goes in the back IFAB, of the net. IFAB, you're talking about. IFAB, you're talking about. Yes, right the yes. International Football Association Board. They met in Aberdeen, and they came up with a number of uh, big changes that we'll go through that go into effect June 1st in right. time for the international tournaments this summer. But the handball one is actually generating the most headlines. The change they made is that if the ball hits your hand and goes in the back of the net or it hits your hand and leads to a goal-scoring opportunity, whether it was deliberate or not, that's a handball. Yes. But – why they didn't make, just make that a blanket rule? So now we have a different standard in the middle of the field exactly. or in a goal-scoring situation. That that seems odd to it's, me. It's it's ridiculous. And you know when I when I think about making it much more black and white, I think back to when VAR came on the scene. I remember at a certain point being concerned that that beautiful subjective part of the game that I think makes makes it the beautiful game would be taken out. But I've I've come to come to feel that. In, in this day and age, when we have so much technology and the answers are already there, I think that we need to, we need to find ways to make it much clearer because ultimately people are going to look at pictures and people are going to make decisions for themselves. Now, whenever I say this, as I said in the State of the Union, inevitably people will say, yes, but the offensive players are going to flick it up and try to hit the uh, players with the arms behind the back. Now, I'm saying this as a defender. It would put me as a defender at a disadvantage, a further disadvantage to be worried about not simply if I do it intentionally, but if, even if I do it unintentionally. And I, I get that. And that's why I say, you know what, maybe going forward, the new way of defending, a new, new way we judge good and bad defenders is at a certain time with them having their hands behind or their arms behind their back. Or maybe defenders say, you know what, it's worth the risk because I want to keep the, the more traditional way of defending and the more traditional body balance out there. And so I'm not going to do it and I'm going to risk it. But, you know, once again, 
each and every time. I mean, there were there was times this weekend. There was all sorts of soccer this weekend that I'm sure you watched. We all we all watched, and there were moments where you said, "Well, we know it hit the hand." That's not even a question of whether it hits the hand. Then we get into the, "Well, did they, did they make themselves bigger? Was it intentional? Was it deliberate? All this kind of stuff." And I just say, "Let's get rid of that." Now there'll still be times where there will be debate: Did it really hit the arm? Did it really hit the shoulder? And all that kind of stuff. But that's a much more clearer type of debate than we had than in this incredibly subjective moment that we put on these human beings to make a, a decision. And I know we still do it, and it will still be there. The subjective part of the game will still be there, and I don't want that completely taken out of the game. But in this instance, when it comes to the handling law, like you said, they, they went further, which is good, but I think they should have gone all the way. Yeah, the changes they made apply to attacking players. Uh, when it comes to defenders, they clarified the wording a little bit, but they more or less doubled down on the existing rule, which is it doesn't necessarily have to be delivered, but your hand does have to be in an unnatural position for it to be a handball. Silhouette. They call a, sil exactly. a silhouette. So now we're going to debate what a silhouette is. Yeah, what's, what's a natural human silhouette I, out I there? agree with you. And it's such an overrated concern, this notion that attacking players are going to be intentionally kicking the ball off the hands of defenders. I, I, first of all, I don't think it's going to happen that often. And, and like you said, I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing in the world if that happens. Well, whenever something happens, because oftentimes we'll see this, where a defender will come sliding in and the, it will hit the arm. And you'll say, well, how is that person supposed to slide in without this being the natural position? And my point is that while it might not be deliberate in that that defender didn't necessarily go in saying, I'm going to hit this with my hand, the deliberate part of the equation is that that defender in that moment said, I am going to risk sliding in and in doing so, because I, I am not a human being that can do this. Maybe there are others that can, but I can't slide with my hands behind my back. That might be a skill that is, that is attained later on from human beings. And that, per, that person in that moment deliberately decided I am going to slide like that. And therefore their action, they are responsible for what happens with that action because the alternative is to say, no, I'm not going to slide in, which by the way, goes back to my other point from the State of the Union, which encourages attacking. I want to see more goals. I want to see more advantage being given to the creative attacking players. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are midfielders and forwards. You can be an incredibly creative and attacking player and be a center back. But I want to see in those moments the advantage completely given to the attacking players. And I, as I said, I'm saying this as a defender. I, I, I get it. Anything else on this before we move to bigger ones? No. So, uh, like I said, they made a number of other changes. You want to go through those? Yeah. Uh, one I really like is that when a player gets subbed out now, he has to leave the field via the nearest touchline. That's yes. an effort to reduce time wasting. I like that. An interesting one, on goal kicks, the ball does not have to leave the penalty area. Goalkeeper can pass the ball to the defender inside the box. But the opposition still has to be outside of the box Yeah, until it's kicked. Until the, it's kicked, yes. Until yes. It's kicked. Uh, on penalties, a goalkeeper only needs to have one foot uh, on the goal line. That's going to be Although that rule's never been enforced. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, who cares? And then attacking players can't interfere with the wall. They have to be at least one meter from the wall because we've seen a lot of uh, teams now put an attacking player right. on there's the wall a, and shield uh, the goalkeeper a, even further. You know, a, um, a circle of safety now uh, on one meter around that wall. Which so is, yeah, which will be interesting to see how that. So yeah, I mean, which one of those jumps out at you that you're most curious uh, to see? The on? leaving of the field, I think, is great. Uh, get your ass off the field as quickly as you possibly can. Uh, and if you're standing next to the sideline, there's no reason you should have to go off at, at, at the at the midfield line. So I, I have no problem with that. Uh, the one you know, the one step uh, type of thing is going to be interesting because, in theory, from the very get go, 
you're going to have an extra step to shut down to, to provide that cone from a goalkeeper perspective. Perspective. I'll be interested to see once the data comes back of you know what the percentage of uh, was before this and what a percentage of is after this and how goalkeepers go about and goalkeeper coaches go about saying how are we going to use this to our advantage uh, going forward as you mentioned this will only start this summer so women's world cup this will all be in effect uh, we'll be able to see all of this it's funny johnny infantino had a had a interesting quote he said that most of the rule changes the last few years to combat diving and time wasting are really intended for the men's game because women have better manners than men they don't engage in that sort of behavior <laughs> I just I always think that they're much better at covering it up. They're much sneakier. <laughs> um, is there any rule change you'd like to see? Uh, my dad is bullish. I even talked to him on my way here, and he, he reminded me of this. He's bullish that if a player gets subbed out, he should be allowed to come back in. He he thinks it would be it would add an interesting element to the game if like a team is uh, preserving a lead. They make a substitution where they take out an attacking player, bring in a defender, but then they concede a goal. Now they need to attack again. They can sort of but undo does he, that does he substitution. Want more substitutions then, or is it all still within the, the, the three type of substitution thing? Yeah, you I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's totally fleshed that out. He might need to be our second ever guest on you just the don't State want of the Union podcast. And you don't yes. want it stopping, stopping and, and the game. And also, you know, if you have a star player that gets sort of banged up and, and you know, Maybe you know he he should be allowed to come out of the game, get himself sure. sorted, and then I'm come okay back in. And so I'm you know, okay with that. Situations as, long as, as long as it's not just a free form right, platooning right. in and out, I have no problem with that. Uh, how about this? Uh, we've we've talked about this before. Uh, would you be in favor? And look, we're 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 talking about these things with the recognition that the the business of this and the economics of it sometimes don't don't work. And in this case, it, uh, I'll get to it in a second. But making the goals bigger, yes, no. 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 My 10-year-old, I was talking to him uh, in the car today, and I suggested that. And he looked at me like I, I was crazy. Uh, we often does that, but we happen to be talking about this, this particular subject. He did not think that that was appropriate at all, uh, and he, did, he wanted no part of that. I've talked about it before. Just from a, uh, from a business standpoint, it would be difficult because every goal in the world we know is, is uniform when it comes to a regulation goal. So everything would have to, would have to be changed all over the place. And some, you know, it costs money to do something. Like I have to say, I think IFAB actually do a very good job. Most of the changes they make are sensible. I think the goalkeeper not being able to pick up the ball with his hands and pass back is one of the great rule changes. Yep. I think it's had such a positive impact on the game. Uh, there are a lot of casual fans that bring up to me, uh, why not get rid of the offsides rule? And mm. believe it or not, they've actually experimented with that, and it did not go well. They said it completely People changes the game and not in a good and, way. Yeah, yeah. so they, they have, that, they have no, tested I, it. And, I'm good with the offside. I'm good with bigger goals if that's what they uh, wanted to do. But like I said, the, the money needed and involved in that would would disadvantage more people than than it than it helped ultimately. All right, here's a couple more. Uh, would you be in favor of? Let's see here. Uh, oh, a, a third colored card. So something in between a yellow and a red. Hmm. hmm. Uh huh. Uh, interesting. I, I'm not like totally opposed to it, but I'd, I'd have to understand a little bit more, like what what situation that card would come in. Right. So maybe yellow card is you're on the, the warning. The insert whatever color that you want in between there. So. Um, or, or you could just change it to a green card is much, much, much more, hey, it's not a regular foul. I have to do something here and actually, you know, wrap your, uh, your knuckles there. And then the yellow card is the middle one. And maybe the yellow card, you actually go out for a certain period of time. And then the red one, you're actually kicked out. That's, that's another one right there. But you're not completely opposed not to it. This isn't like you're killing the game here. All right, here's another one. A little bit more <laughs> radical. Here's a little bit more radical. But I thought about this. Here's, here's, my, here's my last one. On throw-ins, you can take it any way you want. So if you want to 
just chuck it with one hand, you can do that, all right? So it's no more two hands over the head, uh, both sides of the ball, uh, foot on the line type of thing. Yeah, that doesn't bother me that much. I right. could probably get used to that. So you, know, you could, if you want to actually set it up as a set piece and heave the thing into the box, <laughs> you could. Why are you laughing? What, why, no, why are you laughing? I, yeah, I think the whole concept of the throw-in is. It, I, I, I never questioned it growing up, and then when I thought about it, it was, eh. I mean, okay. And, and by the way, for kids, it's, it's a very difficult concept to grasp actually doing. I know having, having kids and having refereed, uh, the throw-in is the bane of many of the, of the existence of coaches and referees and, and kids, uh, kids out there. So, I, so, I, so you get the ball, and you can throw it in any way. You can just you know, toss it underhand, overhand. You can you know, do it like a goalkeeper when they, when they throw long distance. As I said, you can set up for a set piece. I think that that would be something, uh, something that, would, that, that I would – it would make each time the ball goes out – much more important. And so the, the big galoots out there uh, like myself that would just kick the ball out and out of danger, I, 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 you know, I put out that fire. It would make them think twice because <laughs> when they are putting it out there, and I know we have long throw-ins and flip throw-ins over the past, but this would mean there would be more people that could do things in that moment. Liverpool recently hired a throw-in coach. So. Hey, they are incredibly important. I, I, that's the amount of loss of possession off of a throw-in is ridiculous. There's some teams that say we would rather have let you have the ball because we know we're going to win it back, and we don't trust ourselves on our own throw-in uh, <laughs> to do that. All right, anything else that you wanted to suggest? Well, so at this IFAB meeting, they patted themselves on the back for VAR. They concluded uh, that it's been a great success. Yes, I mean, well, we, I think we can all we can agree that it's been a great success. We, whether we're agreeing with that IFAB's the greatest thing in the world, I, that's a, that's another story. And then there there is another big meeting coming up in which Johnny Infantino is going to propose an expanded Club World Cup, uh, but Wafer are strongly opposed to it. So there's a bit of an argument going on there. But uh, Infantino wants to have a lot more teams from all the different regions and make it like a full blown bigger tournament. So we'll see how that goes. Do you like the Club World Cup? We talked um, about this when it came yeah. to the Cup Champions League because that's the, the that's the carrot is for, for yeah a the issue to, the issue with that competition and I don't know how you combat this is just uh, the European team being so much better than everybody else the predictability of it so I don't know if expanding it helps or hurts that or whatnot but um, I like some form of of competition yeah. where the best clubs from the different regions uh, compete against each other so would you if you were the United States Soccer Federation would you want to host the Club World Cup yeah that'd be yeah. I think that I think. It's sometimes, you know, a lot of times it's hosted in Asia and, and, uh, and different places. And always, it, while it's important, and I think that's the ultimate goal, for, especially for MLS teams and American teams uh, and North American teams, for that matter, to, to get there, it just seems a little out of sight, out of mind often, you know, and, and secondary, too. Uh, especially now that U.S. soccer have struck out with the 2020 uh, Tournament of the Americas, although that, there's still some discussions going on there. I thought that might be your State of the Union today. Maybe we'll revisit that topic one of yeah, these weeks. Yeah, explain to the people just so they're not driving or running or biking or, or, or walking, and they're, they're completely oblivious. So to commemorate the 100-year anniversary uh, of the competition in 2016, we had this, what they call the Copa Centenario, where the South American teams success. came here. On and, and off the field. And this sort of expanded competition with certain CONCACAF teams, U.S., Mexico, et cetera. And so the U.S. has recently proposed to South America, why don't we do that again in 2020? And South America balked at it. There's a bit of a debate over money and who would be uh, sure. organizing it. And so because they know how much money uh, that, that is being made. And it would be 
another 16-team tournament, 10 teams from South America, six teams from, uh, from CONCACAF, although the money that would be made would help all the members of CONCACAF, uh, and so that would be a good thing. And there was a lot of money to be made uh, that was made and, and to be made if and when this comes back. By the way, in any form, you can call it whatever it ends up, ends up being. It won't be Copa Centenario again, and it might not even have an affiliation with Copa, but it might just be this, this newly created tournament. Uh, I think, look, they're, they're playing the game as they should, and they're, they're uh, negotiating uh, from a point of, uh, of strength and advantage down there, but I would love to see that. I, I, yes, yes, please, mark me. Uh, anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, listen, uh, hit us up because this is obviously a, a topic and not just the topic specifically of, uh, of what we were talking about today from, from IFAB, but, but all the different either rule changes that have happened uh, or possible rule changes. So this is an evergreen type of topic out there. People are always trying to figure out what, you know, what, what should we do to make the game better? And then there's those that say, don't, don't touch it, it's fine. And why are we messing with something right now and we're gonna fundamentally change it? Well, you know, progress and, and evolution, things change. And the game over the years, as you mentioned, Mossy, there have been uh, changes that have been made and that far outweigh the good. It's, it's, I'm trying to think, but there's not a whole lot of things that I can come up with where it was, oh, we really screwed that one up and that was a mistake. It's always been a progression and uh, an advancement in terms of the changes that were made. And they're reflected at times of how the game is played going forward. So if you agree uh, or disagree out there with what we are, what we are saying, or you have um, some possible rule changes out there of your own that you want to submit, uh, send them to us. As always, use that Ask Alexi hashtag. And we will move on because we've got some great segments coming up here and we got a lot of soccer to talk about this week. All right, moving on. Hello, people. Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more. All on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free. And you can cancel it anytime. So, check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that you can't stop science. You can only hope to contain it. <laughs> nice. Last week, the good folks at KU Leuven, which is a university in Belgium, released the results of a study they conducted in conjunction with Sci Sports, which is a sports analytics company. The study was aimed at measuring how players are affected by pressure. They took all the top players in the world, figured out some metric to measure the quality of their decision-making and execution, and then looked at each player, how those numbers vary depending on the score of a game, the moment of the match, the quality of the opposition, and a whole bunch of other variables that might make one situation more quote-unquote stressful than another. Some of the more notable results, Cristiano Ronaldo is immune to pressure in the sense that his numbers are remarkably flat. His decision-making and execution stay the same regardless of the situation, while Neymar's decision-making and execution uh, become worse in pressure situations. They concluded that he becomes more individualistic and loses the ball more often which of course led to headlines all over the world that study proves Neymar is a choker because <laughs> everything now is an excuse to bash Neymar. Uh, the most interesting thing I took out of it, they said that all the players Liverpool have signed in recent years perform remarkably well under pressure. They're not sure if that's by design or they stumbled upon that, but one of the blokes that carried out this study said that he definitely thinks uh, moving forward teams are going to use this information and they're going to put a lot of stock in it uh, and that it could impact not only signings but also lineup and substitution decisions. Mm -hmm. And before anybody scoffs at that, the analytics crowd has made a lot of inroads in sports over the last 20 years or so. Teams definitely use this information, and perhaps this will be the next step in that evolution. Interesting. 
so yes, your, your last statement there is absolutely correct and, and, and deserves uh, to be expanded on. Recognize that, that when we talk about analytics or any type of data out there, it's, it's just about hedging your bets and making you get a more informed and educated decision. It, in no way, and I've sat with these folks and, and at times used the, these uh, folks, and you know, we've sat and we've been very, very honest because I'm, I'm saying, all right, at some point I need you to give me what your data is telling you to do. But then you don't just completely take that data, and they will be very honest and say, this is what the data says. It doesn't mean that it's, all, that it's always going to happen, but this is what the data says, and this is how we're going to hedge our bets. This, this is a, a powerful, powerful tool because it's next to impossible to approximate a situation and a pressure. Teams always practice penalty kicks, for example. And yes, you can get into a, a groove and an understanding of physically what you are going to do that in, in, in the moment. But it's impossible for coaches to replicate the scenario and the setting and the feeling of that type of pressure for their players. So usually what happens is at the end of training, if you have a potential uh, shootout uh, game or series looming, you, you get up there and you shoot and you say, these are the people that I want to shoot. And you'll make a game out of it and this team wins, this team doesn't, or you make you put some money on it, stuff like that. But it's, you're never able to replicate it. So if there are ways, and it's not just in penalties, uh, but if there are ways to try to understand, as you said, who are, and I know this is a little simplistic, who are the chokers and who, ha who are the ones that have ice in their veins, that's, that's useful. That's something that I can use. That's something that I want. In the past, it was always just, you know, the smell test, the eye test or whatever. You had, you had players that, I didn't smell any of the players, but they smelled like they had ice in their veins is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. There still is this debate between the analytics crowd and old school people. A club like Fulham have gotten a lot of attention in recent years because they rely a lot on analytics to make decisions regarding signings. And they hired this American guy to run their analytics department who's not a football person at all sure. so whenever any of their signings don't work out it, he's become an easy target in England and people criticize him and they went in, they went in, when they went out and hired Claudio Ranieri a couple of months ago it was framed as like okay they've decided to go the other way now and bring in this old school guy and rely on his eye for talent and his feel for the game and of course the correct answer is somewhere in the middle and using elements of both uh, you shouldn't rely blindly on statistics but why wouldn't you want as much information as possible and, and why would you discard that you know completely so you know uh, the media is still a little bit sort of simplistic in the way they frame this stuff. And, and we're, we're dealing with human beings and human beings that don't want to be replaced by machines. And, <laughs> and so that's where a lot of the consternation and the, and the complaints come from, because for so long, it was about, you know, what you felt and that human element of assessing talent out there. And now you have something come along and it's not even a person. It's just a, a thing. It's in the form of the person that's collecting that data. And so that's where a lot of the venom is, is directed to that person. But it, it's it, it's something that I think certainly is changing. Uh, it, is it dying out? And, and this is just not just soccer. This is everywhere. I think soccer in particular is in a certain way the last bastion in the great... Um, the, the final frontier, if you will, because soccer is so unpredictable, I think, and so, so much about chaos. 
and the ability to actually predict what is happening in soccer, even with the best laid plans out there, I think is so much more difficult than other sports out there. And a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of analytics folks that have come to the game that, ha- that have no background in soccer. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, but I think what they find out very, very quickly, whether they have a background in soccer or not, is that this game is very, very different. And the the randomness of soccer, I think, is one of the things that makes it beautiful. It also makes it incredibly frustrating. It also makes it very difficult to be able to attach numbers to it on a consistent basis that will give you something that is, is of use. But I do believe that this is, as you said, part. This is hedging your bets. This is having the most information at your disposal to make an educated and informed decision. And a, an informed decision that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would have been made just simply with the eye test and people that have been around and people that just live and breathe the game. And, you know, I'm sort of of two minds on the Neymar thing. You know, part of me thinks, you know, this is a guy that scored and played well in the Libertadores final, Champions League final, major tournament finals for Brazil, Real Madrid, Barcelona games, Brazil, Argentina games. So it's hard for me to buy that he buckles under the pressure. But actually having watched him through the years, when his team is trailing late and chasing a goal, he does have this hero complex where he tries to do too much. So I actually think in, in that regard, the, the study is spot on. Uh, now, sometimes it works out like in that crazy comeback sure. against PSG in the second leg where he, he more or less took over that game late, uh, but oftentimes it doesn't. So there actually is some validity to what they're saying. The interesting thing with Messi is that uh, in Argentina, he gets criticized for not having a little bit of that, a little bit more of that streak. They think that he, like LeBron James, gets the same criticism in basketball. They always make the right play, and if they see a teammate open, they, they give him the ball. But when that teammate is Gonzalo Higuain, a lot of people feel like, hey, in a big moment, you're sure. Messi. Why don't you try to take over more? So this whole concept of making the right decision on under pressure is sort of it conflicts with sometimes you want your star to be more assertive so how you balance that is kind of interesting is this study saying and in particular when it comes to the cristiano versus messi or or, or neymar that in regardless of the amount of pressure cristiano is going to do what he is going to do and this is saying that with an equal amount of pressure neymar will do things that he wouldn't do and force things in in that moment in order to try to have some sort of success. That seems to be, yeah. Ronaldo keeps his wits about him and and plays his normal game and does well in those spots, the same that he does well in any other situation in the game, sort of at that same ratio, while Neymar uh, tries to do more and actually... uh, ends up sort of actually succeeding less because he's making bad decisions because he's quote-unquote forcing it. So that seems to be what I took out of it. And once again, we're we're talking about human beings with all of our foibles and frailties and and, and difficulties and challenges and insecurities. And when when I see someone, for example, like Cristiano Ronaldo, I mean, there's an element of him not giving a f***, okay, what you or you or you can probably bleep that out, but it's really that's that's what that's what I feel is that he and and I think that that comes out in the way that he plays in that he and people have times call him you know conceited and narcissistic and all that kind of stuff, but I think that there is power and, and I think really what we're talking about at times is him being able to harness that power of self belief and confidence and yes we'll call it arrogance I often call it beautiful arrogance and to be able to harness that and use that in that moment to do the things that we're that we're talking about here and maybe it is that Neymar's just more insecure about who he is and because he's came up playing a, playing at a time when Messi and Cristiano were at a at a higher level than him maybe it's just that insecurity i think others have have used that as fuel to say 
I am going to take these guys these guys down because there's a belief. You know, people have asked me who who's the mentally most the the, the strongest men, mentally that you've that you've played with. And I think back of the different players. There was a guy named Joe Max Moore, and Mr. Clutch, Mr. Clutch. And if you, if you had a penalty or a moment that you needed somebody who wouldn't be phased by the environment and the pressure, it was him. And I think it stemmed from a huge chip on his shoulder, a something that was. I don't think it was ingrained in him necessarily by you know by, by schooling or anything like that. I think he was born with a competitive streak that was so much more than anybody else in that he wanted to win absolutely everything that he ever did. And if you told him he couldn't do something or he wasn't good enough to do something, you only powered and fueled him to want to do it more and to make you eat your words. Yeah, except in the 1999 Confederations Cup against Brazil, he uh, missed a penalty saved by Dita. He wasn't so clutch that day. Well, um, <laughs> but, but he but he stood no, up no, there and wanted to take yeah, it. It was always, it was never a question of when those penalties came around uh, that, you know, he's looking the other way or don't look me in the eyes and stuff like that. It, it's funny when uh, there was that great uh, Juventus documentary on Netflix and there was a game last season which Paulo Dybala missed a penalty against Lazio in the final minute and they showed uh, Dybala talking to the fans after the game, and they were sort of trying to cheer him up. And one of them said, hey, Paulo, the only, the only people that miss penalties are the ones with the courage to take them. That's true. Which was a great line. It is. It is absolutely uh, true. But let, let's end on this. Uh, the study did mention that all the players Liverpool have signed perform well under pressure, which is interesting because a big narrative throughout this whole Premier League campaign has been, are Liverpool going to crack under the pressure? Right. And every time they have a bad result, people accuse them of bottling it. And Jurgen Klopp got very offended at that suggestion this weekend and kind of snapped the reporter, which people then pointed to and said, well, he's cracked under the pressure. Right. When you see teams like Liverpool and Dortmund who had a lead and are coughing it up and starting to have some bad results late in the season, do you see a team that's feeling the pressure or the fans and media are too quick to jump at that when there's probably other reasons for why they're oh, having... Oh, I, I, I see a team that is feeling the pressure. Now, individually, the players, if you take them out, they may be incredibly comfortable and, and secure and be able to handle pressure. But I think collectively as a team, especially when it goes to someone like Liverpool that hasn't won the title and now is sitting in that moment, and, and Dortmund too, I think it's a very different type of position to be chasing at the end than it is to be up there and having people try to knock you down, especially when those people trying to knock you down are Man City from an EPL perspective and Bayern Munich uh, in the Bundesliga. And the we've talked about this, this this inevitable creeping of of doom that seems to be subsurface when it comes to both these teams, I definitely buy into that. I mean, if you want to call that cracking under the pressure or whatever, call it whatever you want. With Liverpool, I would term it more as they're not seizing the opportunity because a lot of these results on their own are acceptable. But, you know, nil-nil away to Everton, nil-nil away to Manchester United who were depleted. But you're not seeing them really go above and beyond. Like right. these are games where they're the better team, they're winnable, and you'd like them to go there and win it. And instead, they're kind of settling for a lot of okay results. Dortmund, I'm sorry, but this is a choke. I know we don't like to use that word. Oh, when you're, <laughs> when you're That's lo- worse than the F-bomb <laughs> that I threw out this show. When you're losing games to Augsburg and, and drawing <laughs> Nuremberg, then that's because you're feeling the pressure. I'm sorry. There's no other explanation for that. What, what they've done the last couple of weeks has been ridiculous. All right. Uh, well, there's another Mossy makes the case. As always, direct your comments to him or me, but mostly to him, especially if they're critical or negative. Uh, that would be that would be the way you should go with that. All right. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right. Moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, time for Ask Alexi, that hashtag Ask Alexi segment where you send in your comments and your questions and your concerns, and uh, Mr. Mossy reads a a few of them out. What do the people want to know this week, Mossy? 
All right. First up, at I'm gonna just say the letters because I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. S. It's not a name. I don't think. S K E O G H B. Sergeant. Pronounce cat. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Sergeant didn't look great versus Stuttgart. They were physical, and he got lost. Any concern with him overall? Now, we should mention, Werder Bremen clearly not concerned because they just gave him a nice contract extension. But uh, what did you see from Sargent? It's a work in progress still. And he is learning his lessons in front of the world and certainly in front of the U.S. soccer community. And I think we're going to attach value, is it fair or not, to each and every play that he has. And if he doesn't win a header... Well, he can't jump. If he uh, loses a tackle um, or gets pushed off the ball, well, physically he, he's, he, he's got problems. If he misses a sitter, he's not a finisher. You know, whatever, whatever it ends up being, we're going we're gonna to see that. But he's going to have to go through these different things. The physical part of the game uh, for him, is it a concern? I don't think so for him in particular. And, uh, but, but the physical part of the game, we've talked about this before, I think, Mossy. I don't know, but... In our effort to create and raise better soccer players 10, 15 years ago, we really focused a lot of our effort and energy on cultivating a group of, and I'm going to put this in quotes because I hate it, soccer players. And I know that means a million different things to everybody, but uh, you know, and everybody says, well, he's a soccer player, or we, we play soccer well and all kind of stuff, and which doesn't mean anything. But, but in this context, what it really meant was, if any young player had any type of skill, we would push them along and give them give them opportunities. In doing so, we kind of went the opposite end of the spectrum. And I think we lost some of the physical uh, dominance and ability and talent uh, and necessary physical tom- dominance that U.S. has been, has, has been a hallmark of the U.S. Uh, going forward. And I, and I mentioned this, I think, a couple podca- podcasts ago about when you see some of the greats of the world that we associate with the greats of the world, Brazil, for example. One of the things, especially when we, we are on site and you, you're, you're standing there and you're watching them come out, the, the size and the strength and the way that even the way that they carry themselves in a larger than life type of manner. It's not just a bunch of messies running around. <laughs> and there are plenty, there's plenty of room for that. But. I just hope that as we go forward making better soccer players, that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of that physical nature. And I know it's a long answer to your question, Skio GHB, if that is really your, uh, your name. Uh, but I'm not worried about Sargent when it comes to the physicality of the game or his game in particular going forward, despite uh, the fact that he didn't have a good game against uh, Stuttgart. Next up, at TKLOL58, soccer in the U.S. has grown quite a bit since your playing days, but the U.S. teams you played on seem to be just as competitive as the current U.S. men's national team. Why hasn't the growth of the MLS and improved infrastructure not translated to being more competitive internationally? Because growth is not linear, right? I mean, it's not, uh, it doesn't just happen each year. You progress the exact same amount and it's just up, 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 up. There's ups and downs and, and bends and curves and arcs when it comes to watching what a growth and an evolution of a sport or a team uh, or even even a player for that matter. I, I I will certainly have an argument with people about uh, how rudimentary we may have been 20 years ago playing and what we were and what we weren't. But I will readily admit and I will argue with anybody that we have progressed and we have progressed at a rate that is pretty phenomenal. 
and we should, I think, be proud of how fast and how far we have come as a soccer as a soccer playing uh, nation. The whether it's the infrastructure uh, that we have, whether it's the culture that we have with you know supporters culture and, and the way that soccer is part of the landscape and the palette of so many out there, or whether it's just the actual players that, uh, that we are producing. Uh, and you know we have developmental academies and all that kind of stuff. So you wanna know why then haven't we won a World Cup? Why then are in, many, in the eyes of many, we still uh, aren't there. Or maybe in the eyes of some, and maybe even you, uh, T.K. Lowell, we are, not only have we not progressed, but we have regressed. I, I don't think that that's the case. I'm, I'll be the first one to tell you, I, I, I want to win a World Cup. Uh, but I do think, in general, when you look at the health of the sport, and in particular, the generation that is coming up right now, there is reason to be bullish. There is reason to have faith and there's reason to have uh, to be excited about the types of players uh, that are happening the infrastructure improved infrastructure do you realize the difference in the world that a young soccer player grows up in 2019 relative to the world that i grew up in in the 70s and 80s in suburban detroit it is night and day the advantages that American soccer players have. So we have progressed. And once again, you're going to say, then why haven't we won a World Cup? Why? Well, we are but one nation of many nations and many nations that have had a 100-year head start that haven't, that haven't won a World Cup. And, and when we do win a World Cup, a men's World Cup, guess what? It's not going to change everything, Okay. There will, there will still be problems, and there will still be weaknesses, and there will still be challenges. It, it is not the great elixir. It would be nice, and it would be a wonderful injection into, uh, into the game, and it would shut people up, and a lot of people that use that as an excuse as to why we're not good. Well, if we're so good at soccer and we progress so much, then why isn't our men's national team uh, that much better? And okay, we can, we, can have, we can have that argument, and there's a bunch of different reasons, and this isn't just me putting on my red, white, and blue and saying everything is hunky-dory and everything's fine. Absolutely not, absolutely not the case. But if you are looking for progress and evolution relative to the time that I grew up in with what we are right now, as I said, it is night and day. I would so much rather have, if you were a soccer player, someone be born in 2019 than be born back in 1970 when I was born. Next up, at Punk Rock Guild, is there any way Ole Solskjaer, obviously he's alluding to, doesn't get the United job? Is there any way? Yes, if they have Pochettino lined up, for example, um, because I think the the shiny new toy, which would be Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, is going to shine incredibly bright. And I think if they have someone who's a much more long-term play, they have to put on their shades and avoid that shine. But it's going to be very, very difficult because everything that he has touched for the most part has turned to gold. I think, you know, look, you, you don't fire a coach, sack a coach, whatever you want to call it, unless you have something that you believe is better, okay? This has been a temporary type of situation. Do you say, well, this is great, we just, we, we lucked into finding somebody? Or do you believe, because when they looked out at the, the field of coaches out there, and not even just from a temporary position, just a field of coaches out there, I guarantee you that Ole Gunnar was not on that short list, Okay, but someone like Mauricio Pochettino certainly was. So, do you not trust yourself in that moment, or is this just such a diamond in the rough type of stars aligning that you had absolutely nothing to do with and don't look a gift horse in the mouth and just take it right now? 
No, I think if you truly believe that someone like Mauricio Pochettino is the right person, then he was the right person before Ole, and he'll be the right person after Ole, regardless of what Ole does. Yeah, I think it's certainly trending in his favor. But like you said, let's wait and see here. They're probably going to get knocked out of the Champions League this week. We'll talk about that in the back three. And we'll see if they finish in the top four and, and how they fare in the FA Cup. That top four race, by the way, is going to be bananas because Spurs have been dragged back into it. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, they should be in even worse position than they are because they had no business getting a point from that Arsenal game. You had first the, the refereeing. And then let me say this because I covered him for years in the Bundesliga. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is one of the worst penalty kick takers I've ever seen in my life. He does not have ice in his veins. I know strikers like to take penalties to score goals, right. but I'm sorry. The next time he grabs the ball in a big moment, somebody needs to throw their body in front of it. They need to do what Pep did with Gabriel Jesus at Anfield earlier this season. Now, that backfired spectacularly because Riyad Mahrez skied his penalty over the bar, and Jesus hasn't missed a penalty this season, and I'm sure Pep looks back at that and says, boy, should have just let Jesus take it. I might have two more points right now, and Liverpool would have one less point but but in this case if somebody did it to Aubameyang it would be completely justified because his track record is awful and I'm sorry he cannot be taking your most important penalty of the season when some of the other players you had on the you, field you think at that they moment. take it because they want to pad their goal scoring is that why a lot of them do it or, or they just uh, want the, the they want the I think there's a sense of responsibility like I'm the striker it's my job to score goals so like I'm gonna grab this is why I, I say that penalties should be a separate statistic they should have it you want data and analysis and all that kind of stuff you want to change <laughs> in the in the it's not, I guess it's not a change in the laws but that's what I want I want a specific column for penalties okay they are separate and apart and maybe Mr. Aubameyang wouldn't be so quick to step up there if it was something completely different it's not really a goal let's even call it something different we'll make up a whole <laughs> new name for what when it goes in I'm not discounting how important it is and how valuable it is but I want a completely separate thing because I think it's at times it it shades and uh, when we're looking at a player and half those goals or whatever it ends up being are from penalties by the way one of the rule changes that IFAB were discussing was eliminating rebounds on penalties if a penalty is saved or hits the post the play is dead it becomes a goal kick and actually Marka reported that they did make that change but I didn't see anywhere else so name drop I reached out to Dr. Joe Macknick about it today and he's like no my understanding is they didn't actually follow through with that change so we'll wait and see but that would have been interesting there because Aubameyang almost scored yeah. in the rebound. And actually, the reason he didn't, frankly, is because Vertonghen was like three steps in the Great. box and yep. ended up being the guy that made a, like a goal line clearance. So Arsenal even have a gripe there from a refereeing standpoint. Obviously, the bigger one is the Tottenham penalty. So yeah, that was a crazy game. But yeah, to, to bring it back to this, yeah. I mean, you've got four teams battling for two spots, Tottenham, uh, United, Arsenal, and Chelsea, and it's going to be absolutely nuts. And yeah, I mean, how United finish uh, in the... Various competitions they're still in, I think, will determine whether he gets the permanent job or not. Wow. Wow. All right. Anything else? Nope. That's All it. right. Thank you, uh, as always, for sending those questions and keep them coming in. Uh, the Ask Alexi, whether you agree, disagree, uh, like I said, send those questions, comments, concerns in there, and Mossy may read some on future episodes of the State of the Union. All right. Moving on. The Back Three. All right. Time for our Back Three. Some big stories, games, and moments from the past week. Uh, Mossy, what do we got? Uh, we'll begin with the U.S. women's national team. Uh, as we mentioned, you were in Nashville uh, yep. this past weekend to cover them. They drew 2-2 against England. They also drew their, their uh, previous game, 2-2 against Japan. This is all in the She Believes Cup, which is kind of a warm-up tournament for mm-hmm. the Summer's World Cup. Uh, so two draws in a row in this tournament, four goals conceded in two games. How concerned should folks be? Alarm bells. Uh, it was interesting to be in Nashville. And to see people that I respect uh, and know and are incredibly knowledgeable, even more so than, than, than I will ever be, uh, saying, hey, this is a problem. Um, so some perspective 
certainly is in order, but Joe Ellis right now has to figure out a way to get this team back on track because they are leaking goals, as you said. They continue to not only give up goals, but give up leads uh, defensively. Now, now keep in mind that Becky Sauberin was not in the back four, and I think she is a big miss uh, and an important, and, and after what's happened over the last couple of games, it's, it's clear to everybody that she's a m- much more important cog than maybe people even realized uh, going forward. But, and I said this on air this weekend, it is Jill Ellis's responsibility to make sure that this team stops making the same mistakes. And Megan Rapino, even after the game, was talking about lessons learned and all that kind of stuff. You don't learn a lesson, okay, unless you are able to actually learn from it and show as you go forward that you have learned that lesson. Uh, and if you keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again, eventually it will bite you in the ass, and inevitably it will bite you in the ass at the worst possible time. I still believe that this is the best U.S. team that has been assembled at, at Jill Ellis's disposal. I think that this is not only the best U.S. team, but it's going into a field that I still believe is the weakest relative to other uh, World Cups in the past, with the possible exception, not the possible exception, with the definite exception of France. And as I said when we were talking about it on air, June 28th, Mossy, all right? Mark it on your calendar because if everything goes as planned, the U.S. wins their group, and I know certainly after the last couple of games that could be in question right now, but I don't think it is. U.S. wins their group, France wins their group, and they go through a round of 16 where they're facing, I don't know, a Spain or something, teams that they both should should beat. They have a date and a matchup in Paris on June 28th, and that's where Jill Ellis and this team uh, are going to ultimately be judged because I think if they get through that, they win. The, they win the World Cup. But that is a big if because France is licking their chops. France is seeing what is happening to this team right now. Now, this is a very strong team. Strong, just not, not just talent wise, but mentally, this is a strong team. I think they are weak when it comes to the midfield right now. And I think a lot of pressure was being put on Julie Ertz to be that one person in the, in front of the back four. So still a lot of questions as to. My, whether, whether people agree with my assertion that this is the best team ever assembled or if this is even a team that can win the World Cup, there's still a lot of question as to whether Jill Ellis, who we know is on the second cycle, and that doesn't always work out well for coaches just in general, on the second cycle and obviously defending the World Cup, if, this, if, if Jill Ellis can get this right and get the fixes necessary to have this team ready uh, for this, uh, this summer going forward. Uh, it's going to be fun. They still got, uh, what, seven games, but it has not started out well leading up to the World Cup. And there's a lot of people out there, as I said, that are much smarter than me that this has given them real pause and that they are concerned. And they're concerned because they're not necessarily convinced that Jill Ellis and this team can get these things fixed and they're going to rear their ugly head once again uh, this summer. So a lot of concern. Gives us lots to talk about. Uh, I'm still, once again, bullish about this team uh, going forward. and I think it will get fixed. Will it get fixed enough to win the World Cup? I don't know, because that June 28th date scares the bejesus out of me. And uh, they close out the She Believes Cup. We're taping this on a Monday. Tomorrow, Tuesday, they face Brazil, uh, and that one live on FS1 for you. Next up, the 2019 MLS season is off and running. A lot of good games this weekend, a lot of storylines. What caught your attention? So I was watching I mean, there so many. There were 12 uh, different MLS games uh, over the course of the weekend, obviously all through Saturday. Uh, and we had games, uh, we had a doubleheader on our air and then Sunday and you know more nationally televised games. Uh, what caught my attention? Well, look, you have a defending champion, Atlanta United, that went into D.C. United. 
uh, I thought DC United was really, really good. And yeah, it was raining and all that kind of stuff. But Atlanta, and, and I was you know going back with some folks uh, yesterday on Twitter, when I watched that Atlanta team, this is a, an Atlanta United team that has been built and more importantly, has been billed as this super club. There's a reason why Atlanta United is on national television a lot, because people want to see. There is a curiosity, and there is a recognition that you are going to be entertained. And look, win or lose last year, Atlanta United was must-see because they were entertaining in the way that they played. They were anything but entertaining last night. And I know they have CONCACAF Champions League, and I know P.T. Martinez didn't start, and I know Gressel didn't start, and... And I, I, I get all of that. But my question was, and I know it's after one game, but that's what we do. Everyone's like, oh, you should you know, wait, wait until it's, it's a small sample size. No, that's not what we do. We have a game. Your team played. They were not good. They looked very, very different than what has been promised to us over the last couple of years of Atlanta United. And I'm going to react because that's what fans do. That's what we do. And I ultimately am a fan of the game. And I have tuned in because of the fact they have lived up to this, this billing of being an attractive and entertaining and interesting team on a consistent basis. By the way, whether they win or lose. And last night, not only did they lose, but they were boring. And I'm, I, I worry that Atlanta United is going to be boring. Now they have CONCACAF Champions League that they are, are back in right now, and I, th I certainly think there's a lot of focus on that. But you know what? You can't have me look and assess and react as a human being to what a team hasn't done. They've only played one game in MLS, but that's the game that we're looking at. That's the one that we're watching right now. So that for me was interesting to see and fun to see. Michael Bradley, by the way, is tied for leading scorer uh, in MLS. Nobody, I don't think anybody thought that was going to happen. Last time he scored was 2016 or 17, or whenever it was, 16 probably. Uh, and he scored two goals. Went into Philadelphia, said, thank you very much. I'm Michael Bradley. I will take that three points. I will lead the league right now in goal scoring. That was fun to see. My Loons. My Loons getting not only a win on the road, but their first ever win in the Western Conference on the road, I think. And tying, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, their, their total road win <laughs> from last year. So they're off to a good start uh, over there, the, uh, the Minnesota Loons. Well done. And we know they're moving back into their, uh, not back, they're moving into their brand new stadium. That's going to be fun to see them going forward. So look, there's a million things that we talk about the, uh, this MLS season. There's so much soccer and there was so much MLS soccer out there. It, was, it, was, uh, it warmed the cockles of my redheaded heart to have MLS back on a continual basis all weekend, and there was a lot of MLS soccer that I watched. I was with the great JP Della Camera, and at one point uh, we said, "Let's go out and get a drink and go to the bar and, or, or whatever." And he was he was focused. He was laser focused. I need to be in a place where I can see MLS games, and I love that JP is just you know down for everything uh, that's MLS. And I should say that Ali Ali Wagner was exactly the same. We found a place that was showing the games, and it was fun. Uh, three big picture MLS thoughts. So the Galaxy ended up buying out Gio Dos Santos. Mm -hmm. uh, but that situation last week sort of triggered a larger debate about MLS. And I know you were pretty consistent in the fact that Gio Dos Santos was not a hill to die on, that he's not worthy right. of betting the rules. Right. But in general, you do feel like MLS needs to be flexible. If, if Messi wanted yes. to come to MLS tomorrow yeah. and go to a certain team and that team didn't have a DP slot or salary cap room, you figure out a way to get it done. Because so you, the greater good. And I'm not just talking about the, uh, you know, the single entity, which is based on the greater good. And the collective is more important than the individual team. I'm saying the greater good for the business of Major League Soccer. And ultimately, by the way, if, it's, if we're talking Messi type of things, the greater good for soccer. Yeah, you get it done. You don't stand on principle for that. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't come because you know some ridiculous rule that MLS has makes it so that you can't do it. And so 
I, I have recognized and accepted and agreed with over time the fact that MLS rules by design are flexible and fluid and able to be, and I know this is, is you know, we use it as a pejorative, but manipulated in order to do what is good. And yes, the Galaxy more so than anybody over the years has benefited from it, but other teams have benefited from, uh, benefited from it. And if you're doing stuff that is good for the league, if I'm an owner in MLS and and somebody is willing to spend money or do something that's big, ultimately you're helping you're helping my business, all right? You're helping my product. And that's something that I would never want to be an obstacle for something like that, uh, for that happening. When it comes to Gio, Giovanni, that's why I said, you know, this is, this is going to get done. And it's going to get done in the right way, whatever that ended, ended up being. They decided, all right, we're going to buy him out. It would have been much more interesting if this was a player that LA Galaxy actually wanted. <laughs> and then they really had to make a decision and they were losing somebody. They're not losing anybody that they wanted or has made any difference in this team right now. So they buy him out and off he goes. And by the way, this is not Gio's problem or fault. This is a situation that the leadership at the Galaxy created. And they had to fix it. And they had to fix it in the most expensive way. And sometimes you have to cut your losses. And that's exactly what they did. Number two, I gobbled up the LAFC mm. documentary, which was on ESPN Plus. Uh, yeah. Kudos to them for putting that together. Yep. I'm, I know you you watched it as well. I really enjoyed it. I thought Bob Bradley was such a fascinating character. I love the scenes with him and Michael Bradley and him coaching against mm -hmm. his son. I thought that was fascinating. I also thought it was fascinating, like, after they lost a sporting KC, he runs on the field talking to a couple of players. He's fuming, and he's ranting and raving. He says, I'm not going to bring any of this into the locker room. And yep. then a minute later, he's in the locker room. And, yeah, he gives a terse speech, but it's a lot more composed. And the fact that he can kind of switch it off sure. like that, it, I thought was pretty interesting. A couple of things on the uh, on the documentary. Uh, we are LAFC. Uh, you can find it on uh, ESPN Plus, right? And it's quick. It's it, while it's ten uh, episodes. Each episode is 15, 20 minutes or something like that. So you can binge it very, very quickly. And and it does. It gives you an incredible look behind, and and, and in particular, a unique look at a first year team, uh, which which is which is interesting in, in and of itself. The fact that Bob Bradley participated in this um, is, is once again a feat, <laughs> a feat in itself. I'm so glad that he did. He ends up being the star of this uh, documentary. I was a little, you know, I, I kept waiting for a, a better villain or foil to come into play, and they never really materialized. It is about Bob Bradley, and it's hard when you're a player because you know this is being seen and edited as a player, and so the things that you say and the relationships that you have, and so you, you, you kind of have to pick and choose how you go about saying your uh, words. But I'm glad Bob, Bob Bradley did, because I think it gave us a, a further glimpse into the mind of a, an incredibly interesting and at times complex and, and at times... Uh, from an outside perspective, at times a, a frustrating type of, of figure. But I think it gives you an idea of what makes him tick. And whether you agree with it or not, it is very, very clear as to what Bob Bradley wants to do with this team in terms of creating a, an atmosphere, creating a style on the field, but ultimately creating an, an ethos off the field about what they are. And, and it's been given, he's been given this opportunity uh, with a brand new team. So I, I recommend it highly. It was fun. The, the one thing I will say is that it, traditionally and coaching type of 101 thing is that after a game, players, it, they're not going to intake anything. And so it's very difficult after the game to do it. And you were right. The amount of times, and once again, it's in the editing. So I hear, I, I can hear Bob saying, yes, but you didn't see this. And yes, but you didn't see this. It's okay, Bob, don't worry about it. And I know you're listening. So 
the amount of times that Bob was seen post-game on the field getting into it, and I'm not talking about screaming, but getting into X's and O's and different things when you know the players, you, you, it's so hard to intake any of that. And a lot of times that's for the actual coach, the coach's benefit as opposed to the player's benefit. But it just was interesting to me to see this legend of the game kind of go against what tradition dictates in terms of how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to let them decompress and then get them at a better time when they can actually intake the type of information that you want to give. And he wanted to do it immediately. And uh, and like I said, if he was here, he would explain, yes, but you didn't see this, or this is why that I'm doing it. But I, thought, I just thought it was fascinating to see him time and time again choose immediately after the game to go to different people and to have those discussions that traditionally happened uh, well past the game. And last thing, and then we'll move on. Matt Doyle, who does an amazing job covering the league, he wrote mm-hmm. an excellent uh, season preview in which words. he separated the teams into different tiers. And, and he made an interesting point in talking about the Red Bulls. He said that... Um, Although the MLS format is such that obviously the thing you want to win ultimately is MLS Cup, he feels like in looking back at a season and determining who was the best team in the league that season, that the supporter shield is more indicative of that, who was the best team over the the whole regular season. And then some people uh, came back at him and said, well, because you have the playoffs and that's ultimately what you want to win, teams pace themselves and they're not necessarily always worried about getting the most points possible in the regular season. So it's not really a great indicator of who the best team was. How do do you see that? That's true. I, I don't care about the supporter shield. It's not that I don't recognize that it is an accomplishment and that there are those that prioritize it more than others, but this is MLS, all right? The confetti, the moment, and the moment that's remembered is MLS Cup. And if you don't want that to be the priority, and if you don't want that to be the focal point, then get rid of the playoffs. I care that you are there standing on that podium at the end. And the end is not the end of the regular season. The end is after MLS uh, Cup. Now, with the changes this year, the regular season takes on even more importance because there's no two-game type of things. You get to host that game, and it becomes that much more valuable what you do in the regular season because you get to host the game uh, in the postseason. The, the other thing that I, that I thought was interesting is that as – as the league has grown, and now we're at 24 teams in the 24th season, we have these new teams coming in. The idea, and I saw a uh, in, in an article uh, from uh, Cincinnati, which just came into the league, talking about how win or lose, this was just a wonderful moment to be a part of. And I get, I completely get that. And this is why, you know, I talk about the loons and all that kind of stuff and soft launches and, and all that. I sometimes bristle at that because, yes, you're new. And yes, there's, there's a learning period, both on and off the field. But I guess that I need to know when I can actually judge you. When does it not become about a greater good? When does it not become just about you're just happy to be there? And when does it actually become about the results on the field and the product that you are putting, uh, putting on the field? There will some that say you're two, or those some will say, well, we move into the stadium. I get that, but... If I'm a player as proud as I am of the fact that this, this, this process and the adventure has started, the adventure and the process is based at its core about a team, a soccer team that you're putting on the field. And ultimately, that's where you're going to be judged. And ultimately, from an MLS perspective, I will judge you on whether you win MLS Cup. And you can have all the supporter shields that you want, and you can celebrate them all you want. But for me... The true champion is the one that's standing there at the end of the day after the MLS playoffs. 
We'll end on this. The Champions League round of 16 resumes this week. Now, three of the four ties look pretty settled, and mm-hmm. the one that isn't, uh, Roma-Porto, is frankly the least interesting. Uh, whichever team advances there is going to be the team that everybody wants to draw in the quarterfinals. Uh, Roma have a 2-1 aggregate lead. They go to Portugal trying to preserve that. The uh, first leg, uh, the kid I mentioned, Nicolo Zaniolo, scored both goals. He made me look smart, so you can <laughs> catch him again. That's rare, right. but it's an amazing right. achievement Blind on his score, part. Fine in a nut. Here we uh, go. <laughs> yes. uh, but we don't think either of those teams could win the Champions League. Tottenham ha- bring a 3-0 advantage into their second leg with Dortmund. As we've talked about, if any team can screw that up, it'd be Tottenham. But the way Dortmund is playing right now, you, you imagine Tottenham going through. But, but you, don't think, you don't think Tottenham are good enough to win the Champions League, correct? No. Okay, so that leaves uh, the other two. Real Madrid are back home with a 2-1 edge over Ajax. They should move on. But I'm going to say this right now. I do not think Real Madrid are good enough to win the Champions League this season. The goal scoring is too big of an issue. You saw it in these Don't two games. Don't they have to almost though now? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but you saw it in these two games against Barcelona. Listen, they were the better team in the Copa del Rey match and somehow lost 3-0. Barcelona were the better team in the league game. But still, if you take both games, the amount of shots, crosses, balls pinging around the Barcelona box, and the fact that they could not get a goal at home in 180 minutes, I thought was very telling. And obviously they miss Ronaldo. They talked themselves into the fact that all these things were going to happen. Asensio was going to make a leap this season. Bale was going to stay healthy and relish the spotlight. Benzema was going to adjust his game to become more of a goal scorer. None of those things has really happened to the degree they wanted it to. And, and now now, Bale's halfway out the door. Asensio can't even get on the their, field. Their <laughs> best attacking player, the one bright spot this season, Vinicius Jr., the one weakness in his game still, he's not a good finisher. So they, they struggled <laughs> Other than to that, score he's goals. A great attacker. But yeah, I mean, a couple of Real Madrid things. The Bale situation, again, he got booed off the field this weekend. His agent, Jonathan Barnett, again came to his defense, made the point that I made on this pod a couple weeks ago. Look at the the trophies this guy's won, the moments he's had, game-winning goals in Champions League finals, and why are the fans so hard on him? Again, it comes back to the fact he doesn't speak Spanish well. He doesn't hasn't embraced living in Spain that much. He, they, they doesn't seem to get along with his teammates that well and all of that. And he's injured a lot. And, and truthfully, although he's had great moments, won a lot of trophies, he really hasn't been like a great player throughout his six years there. So, How dare you? Know, you? How dare you? <laughs> Actually, Alex Dowden and I were talking about this, our, our intrepid producer, uh, before the pod started. If, if he did decide to go back to England this summer, he's now 29. I think he turns 30 right. in a few months. He's had all these injuries. You know, what kind of transfer fee would he command? Is Bale still this mega yeah. guy that a team it would— it still would be phenomenal, uh, a phenomenal high. But it, everyone's—once again, human beings— there's a million different reasons why you like a player or don't like a player. The player scores goals. Okay, fine. The player has great hair. The player is incredible off the field in the things that he, he says. I don't know. The player is married to someone that you like. There's a million reasons why people like a player or why a player just, you just mentioned language. What, whatever it ends up being, he has not ingratiated himself for the things that he has enough for the things that he has done on the field. And you mentioned they're, they're wonderful moments. Is it, is it at a level where he's, you know, a, a legend? No. But I don't think he's, I don't think his, he's bothered. His agent is certainly bothered. But don't worry about people kissing your feet or giving you what you feel you are due. Because you're, ne- you're never going, once again, you're dealing with human beings. And so if it's because you look a certain way or don't speak this language or they don't like your, your significant other or, or whatever it ends up being, or you didn't clap them at the end of the game or whatever it ends up being, there's nothing you, there's nothing you can do about that. Make your money, have a good time. If he's going back to England, go back to England. But worrying about your legacy uh, from a player, I think is, is, it only leads to problems. 
Uh, one more Real Madrid point to move on to PSG. Sergio Ramos went into that first leg against Ajax knowing if he picked up a yellow, he'd be suspended for right. the next match. And late in the game, they're winning 2-1. He figures, okay, this tie is is in order. And so he committed a foul and got booked. And I actually thought he disguised it pretty well. It, it felt like a normal foul in the flow of the game. But then he goes after the game, gives an interview, and says, yeah, I did that on purpose. So well, Wayfa Why is that then, a problem? Why, what? I, I was going to say, Wayfa then went ahead and suspended him an extra game. Stupid. So he suspended for the second so leg stupid. and for the first leg of the quarterfinals. And a lot of people were criticizing him, including myself on Twitter, for what an idiot. Why would you admit it after the game? But then some guy on Twitter brought up a fair point to me. Like, should that be a suspendable no. offense? Uh, yeah, and I it's thought about it. It's the dumbest thing in the yeah, world. Yeah, it's strange. You know, I, I've done that before I've taken a yellow strategic yellow and understanding that you know you you, you live to fight another day and you know lo- lose the battle win the war at that, that type of attitude but it shouldn't be that should be looked at as oh it's an affront to the game or anything like that or there should be additional uh, things put on because he actually admitted what everybody knows is happening and he's really just being penalized because either he admitted it or he didn't he, you know he didn't disguise it enough Nah, that's the, that's the dumbest thing in the world no, it's not the dumbest thing in the world. That's a little hyperbole. But, you know, <laughs> uh, finally, one, of the, one of the dumb things in the world. <laughs> uh, PSG will look to finish off Manchester United. They bring a 2-0 lead into the second leg in Paris, and Paul Pogba is suspended. So that's a tall order oh. for United to try to uh, overturn that. Uh, if Real Madrid do, do go through, right. they could get matched up with Barcelona. We could have more Clásicos in our hands. Correct, correct, oh yes. Okay. All right. PSG was a team that I had uh, ruled out as a contender to win the Champions League this season because I didn't think their midfield was good enough. That first leg against United made me reconsider. Tuchel might be creative enough to figure that out. And, and, you know, I thought their midfield performance was actually great in that game. So you never know. And the other thing is Mbappe is really relishing the spotlight right now with no Neymar Cavani. He scored in five straight games, a streak that began in that first leg at Old Trafford, seven goals across those five games. Uh, so that's another thing they have in their favor. I mean, they just have a kid right now that is just uh, unbelievable. Yep. So would you look at PSG as a team that's capable of winning the Champions League this no. season? No. I still don't look at them as capable of winning. They do have, <laughs> you know, one of the most incredible players, but I still don't see them as capable. No. Because they don't have, uh, what's his name again? Neymar? Well, they're hoping to have him back for the quarterfinals. So. Well, the choker. They got to get there first. <laughs> yes. The, the, uh... <laughs> All right. Anything else, Mossy? No, that's it. We come to an end of a pod in which I did not insult Alex Dowd once. Once. Well, there's, you know, once the cameras and the microphones are off, it's, you know, open season. As, as it usually is. All right, we come to, as you mentioned, the end of another pod. We started out talking about the the laws of the game and, and rules, laws. I know people get all crazy about calling it. You can call it rules or laws. But the laws of the game and how the laws have changed over the years. And in order for, for progress, in order for evolution to have, you have to be willing and able to look at yourself or to look, in this case, at the game and to do things that that further and change and help the game. And over the years, I think soccer in general has done a pretty good job of adapting to whether it's the change in the way that we play the game on the field, uh, which has made which has caused problems or challenges, whether it's changes in the way that we watch the game and the technology that's uh, that's available. And so, you know, when I throw out things like making the goal bigger or, uh, you know, throwing in any way you want uh, in, in a throw-in or something like that, there are some people that their, their, their heads explode, not because they can't understand it, just because they're so irate that you would be tinkering with anything. And this happens and applies to all the sports out there, as you know, Mossy, uh, people, when we're talking about football or we're talking about baseball, don't, don't mess with it. It's an institution. 
whether it's an American institution or just a world institution. The world plays the game. It's the beautiful game. This is the way that we, that we play it. But you know what? The world changes, we change, and the sport has to change with it. And so I am excited that, that there are people in charge, whether I agree with the changes or, or not, I'm excited that there are people that are willing to look at it in a different way in order to make the experience, both the experience of playing the game and maybe even more importantly, the experience of watching the game, which so many more people actually do. I'm, I'm happy that there are people, whether it's IFAB or anybody else, that have open minds to doing things differently. And it doesn't mean that we want a completely different game there. It doesn't mean we don't want to you know, keep some of the history and keep a touchstone to the game that was played and has been played for over, over 100 years. But some of these things that are going to impact the game going forward that we will start seeing uh, this summer, initially, your mind is going to say, well, why is that happening? And then it becomes like nothing else. I lived through the change of the back pass rule in that I started playing before it, Rule change happened, and that's a massive change. Not being able to pass the ball back to your goalkeeper and have that goalkeeper pick it up with his or her hands. That's a massive change. But players, and especially good players, they adjust. And they will adjust. Whether it is to adjust where the goals are bigger or whether it's to adjust with a goalkeeper only having to have one foot on the line, they will adjust to the game. And I think ultimately a lot of these things that we're talking about will help make the game better. As I mentioned before, this is ripe for your opinion out there. And so if you have been thinking about this, and I know inevitably every soccer fan thinks about this. Why? Even, even people that don't necessarily like soccer, they go to the game and say, well, why, why isn't this like this? So I know you probably have a, uh, and you're thinking about it right now as you sit in your car or in, in your, your bike or you're walking or wherever you listen to this podcast, you're thinking, this is what should be done. And you have a list. Well, send those through to us because uh, the the ability to change and those great ideas doesn't matter where they come from. And there are no, as, as they always say, there are no bad ideas. Well, there might be some bad ideas and we'll make fun of those when they come in. But the, the fact is think, as they say, outside the box about doing things differently. Think about how the changes that you are suggesting will help the game. Because ultimately, we don't want to do anything that's detrimental to the game. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the game looks like this summer, in the summer of 2019. I'm also looking forward to seeing what the game looks like in 2026, when the uh, U.S. hosts the World Cup, along with our friends to the North Canada and our friends to the South Mexico. But I'm looking forward many, many years from now, when I'm old and gray uh, and getting ready to head off into something else, I'm looking forward to seeing what the game is. Because it may look, and I guarantee it will look very, very different. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. All right, Mossy, anything before we go? Nope. All right, thank you for listening to the State of the Union podcast. As always, I hope that you enjoyed it. Send us, as I said, those hashtag Ask Alexi questions, comments, and concerns. And hopefully we'll use some of those in future episodes. And we will see you next week. As always, size the day. <laughs>